Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In five, four. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to start and a burp bubbled up. I hope you got that. <laughs> Hello. And welcome to the first episode of Coral Chihuahua. Cool suspension. This is a new podcast exploring all things coral and brought to you by British supergroups Ifagiolini and the 16. The team's made up of three choral directors Robert Hollingworth, director of Ifagiolini. Say hello, Robert. Hello. And uh, founder and director of The 16, Harry Christophers. Greetings, everybody. I'm Eamon Dugan. I'm the associate conductor of The 16 and a singer with Ifagiolini and the link between the two groups, if you like. Now, over the course of the series, we're going to be chewing the choral cud and discussing the things that matter to us when we're working with our choirs. And we're going to be joined by some guests as well, uh, composers and conductors and singers who will be sharing their uh, expertise and experiences with us. Ordinarily, at this point, we'd be sat round a table face to face, but we're recording the first few episodes of this series uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. So we're currently hundreds of miles apart. Um, maybe not hundreds of miles. Harry, you're not too far away from where I am here in West Sussex. No, I'm just in Kent on the North Downs. A little village called Otford, and it's pretty lovely. Very lovely. And Robert, how about yourself? I'm in the centre of the country in York. Why are you in York? Uh, I, well, yes, I moved to York a few years ago. and I teach at the University of York. Um, I teach undergrads, but have a master's course in solo voice ensemble singing as well. So for this first episode, we're going to be looking at the early days of your two groups, E. Fagiolini and The Sixteen, looking at what musical life was like back in the Dark Ages then, and discussing some of the struggles uh, and uh, successes that you've experienced since then. But to kick us off, Robert, I believe you've got a little mystery track up your sleeve for us. It is a mystery track, and if you can guess this, then uh, then chapeau to you. We are in the west, in the town of Merced. The Hinklehorn honking club just went to bed. Every horn has been quiet 
Gorgeous. Harry, do you want to hazard a guess as to what that might be? No idea. It's a wonderful bit of a schmaltzy barbershop. It's absolutely glorious, close harmony. Beautiful, isn't it? Wonderful harmony. No idea. Uh, well, not, not in fact an arrangement, as you might think, but that's Roderick Williams's first commission, I think, <laughs> possibly for anybody, right back in uh, 1987. It was our second concert. And that was settings of uh, Dr. Seuss's Book of Sleep. It's called Dr. Seuss's Sleep Thoughts. Um, and we recorded that the week of my finals recital, I think two or three days afterwards in a church just out, outside Oxford. Robert, is this the finals recital where you had to persuade someone in the audience to cough at a particular note that you couldn't quite hit? I'm not, pers- <laughs> not persuade. My, my money changed hands. There was, a oh, note that I was, there, was, there was a note that I was a little nervous of and... Uh, how do you know these things? Uh, I have my I have my ways. That's the person from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, isn't it? <laughs> Gorgeous. Uh, that was beautiful. I've never heard that before, but uh, as soon as it started, I thought that had Roddy's uh, Roddy's thumbprint all over it. Wonderful stuff. An irritatingly talented man. Mm. Yes, indeed. I remember being in a rehearsal actually. Uh, which I'd commissioned a couple of pieces from Roddy uh, to perform with Britain Symphonia Voices, and he came to the first rehearsal. And as ever, he was so lovely. And uh, when he left, we had some other pieces to rehearse afterwards. One of the singers turned around to me and said, when he gets home, do you think Roddy is just absolutely foul to his children? Because <laughs> it's got to come out somewhere, hasn't it? Surely. <laughs> but uh, I'm, sure that's, I'm sure that's never the case. Harry, last year, 16, uh, were 40 years old, uh, a wonderful achievement. And we had a, an extraordinarily busy year. When you first founded the group, did you? I mean, did you imagine that you'd still be the sixteen would still be working forty years later, and that, and it would have been the the focal point of your musical life? Oh, not at all. I mean, I was still a singer then. I was I was singing at Westminster Abbey and English Music Theatre Company, and you know, I formed the group just from a, a group of friends from uh, Canterbury days, from Oxford days, people I knew at Cambridge who sang in Clerks of Oxford or early days of the Tallis Scholars, and it was just that getting to sing these wonderful music, Tudor music that we we were sort of so much enjoying and just wanted to do ourselves. And uh, yeah, I, the fact that it's become my career has just been a, a sheer delight. And Robert, Fagiolini are 34 years young this year, which is frankly terrifying to me because it seems to me like the 25th anniversary tour was only only a few, like literally three or four years ago. Um, do you still recall the start of the group with great clarity? Oh, memory plays funny tricks, but I do remember early rehearsals. It, it was unusual. We had two rehearsals a week for a term, uh, and that was that was unusual for a group of choral scholars whose reading was already good. But we were doing mostly unusual 16th century repertoire. Um, we were doing uh, programmatic chansons by Jeannequin. We were doing difficult Monteverdi madrigals and pieces by Jacques de Vert. And our Italian wasn't necessarily very good. So it took a lot of rehearsal and it was, and it was a struggle. And it's also difficult, I don't know how he feels about this, but it's difficult directing your contemporaries. I, that's, there's another subject, isn't it? Another <laughs> subject for the podcast, how to work with singers, how to work with other human beings. And one to a part, of course, it's all very, very personally exposed. Yes, I can relate to that. Uh, certainly my own experience of when I started conducting the 16 was uh, 
it's a very interesting experience to you know to switch roles from one minute to be standing alongside your colleagues and then the next minute having to tell them that they're a little bit flat at certain points. So Robert that's quite niche repertoire for a you know for an 18 19 year old to be exploring wouldn't you say? I never terribly worried about it. I just sang the music I thought was interesting at the time. And some of it coincided with work, with work I was doing on my music degree. So we had a term when quite a lot of Landini and Masho, medieval composers, appeared in the programme for no apparent reason. Um, Jacques de Vert was a magicalist I came across because I was looking at that that week in, in my degree. We were doing a lot of stuff the King of Singers had done first. Their magical history tour had only just been on television. This is early 1980s. Um, and f- for me, as with Harry, I think it was an opportunity to perform with friends. But specifically for Fagiolini, it's that utter joy of being part of an ensemble, but having the solo expression. So it's a combination of those two things. Well, you've both mentioned uh, friends there. And having been a member of both of your groups, it's absolutely at the, at the heart of what you do. There's this wonderful corps d'esprit in, in both groups. Uh, which I think is part of what what makes them so special. Harry, you also mentioned uh, Tudor music there, and that was... Eamon, Eamon, did did you say cordless brie? Is that a new type of cheese I've never heard of? (laughs) Yeah, everything's wireless these days. Oh, very good. Thank you. Yeah, Corps d'esprit, I beg your pardon. (laughs) (laughs) Harry, you were just mentioning Tudor music, and this was very much at the core of what uh, the 16 set out in the early days. That was the, the, the core of the repertoire that you were performing, yeah? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I'd been a sort of uh, found a member of the Tallis Scholars. I'd sung with the Clarks of Oxford. And, you know, this this music was sort of in our blood and I just wanted to perform it. And I think what the lovely thing about having your own group is that it, it reflects your own musical tastes. And so people can see that the composers I love, you know, I love Shepherd, I love Bird, I love Tallis. But then, of course, I love Victoria, Poulenc, Britain, from Arta, and, and, and so it goes on. So um, it, it sort of having the luxury of having a group of singers in front of you where you can explore all that wonderful repertoire and uh, and feel you've got something to say about it. Now, recording has been an enormously important part of, of both of your lives since, I mean, it's crucial to the profile of any group. You've got to be making recordings and, and putting them out there. Um, <clears throat> we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but we're going to hear a, an excerpt from a track, Harry. Uh, now, this is very early on uh, in the 16s. Uh, career, uh, nineteen was it nineteen eighty, I think, and this is uh, a first recording of Wilkinson's Salve Regina.
Wow. Ouch. As I said, it's so high, isn't it? I mean, that was 1980, a, a, a year after the official start of the group. And Robert was saying earlier, having two rehearsals uh, a week for Fajdi, we had for that, we had one rehearsal on the Friday night and we had two sessions on the Saturday. And it was in a church, uh, St. Anna St. Agnes in Gresham Street, which is now the home of Voce's Eight. But there's something really funny about this because it was uh, days of LPs. Do you remember those, uh, Robert and Eamon? I do. Scratchy, scratchy. Yes. Well, we had the, the. It was for a company called Meridian that was been formed by Ted Perry, who then went on to Hyperion, and a guy called John Shuttleworth, who was actually mm. a maths teacher at Eltham College, and John was engineer and producer for this. And being an LP, he insisted that um, you couldn't go over twenty-two minutes per side. Well, if you know you're eating choir book. Uh, most of those antiphons last 15 minutes. So I had one men's voice piece and then, you know, it said, well, the other piece isn't going to fit. And I thought, what? What are we going to do? So what happens at lunchtime on the Saturday, we get into Robin Barter's car, it's Sally Dunkley, Francis Steele and B, bomb down to Westminster Library, get out the volumes of the Eaton Choir, but pick a men's voice piece. And I think it was Brown, <laughs> Stabat Marta, Euxter, or something, Stabat Euxter. Sally and Fran edit it in the, in the car on the way back. I put in a few dynamics. Chris Hodges takes it off to his McKenna's, which was around the corner, photocopies it, and we sing it. And everything in six hours, that whole <laughs> CD. In-car editing, that's fantastic. That's Absolutely. sort of, you know, they think they're doing it on the hoof these days on computers, but that's <laughs> staggering. <laughs> it's but then, you know, that, that product, that music is really tricky. And, you know, three hours rehearsal, six hours of recording. That's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, there there was this. Uh, I mean, you used the word cavalier, I think, at one point. Uh, you know, there, there, and there was this uh, sort of approach to it, wasn't it? That it was it was a voyage of discovery. It was, and you thought you could do anything, really. You just you just sang the notes. I mean, we were all good readers, but and I remember with that particular men's voice piece, I said, "Look, we're basically sight reading this, so just watch me, uh, and and I'll try and shape the piece." And that's what we did. <laughs> Amazing. I was doing a little bit of research on this uh, yesterday and I found out that you've actually recorded that piece three times at three different pitches. <laughs> I've got wise over the years. I mean, you know, back in 1979, we were all disciples of David Wilson, the Clarks, and I think Robert sang in the Clarks for a bit as well, didn't you? That's right. Yes. And, uh, you know, that that high pitch stuff, it, it was it was celestial. It was it was new. It was challenging. But uh, I think reality is now uh, set in. And, and thank goodness, I'm sure the SOPs will be thanking me forever. Yes, I can I can confirm that the Sopranos are very glad that tastes have changed. <laughs> you mentioned LPs there. My first 16 recording that I owned was a cassette. It was one of the Eaton Choir Book series, actually, The Rose and the Ostrich Feather. Oh. I, I loved the title of it. I didn't have a clue what it meant. Um, but I was, uh, I was just beguiled by the music. And just, yeah, I mean, it's been a, a real delight and joy of my singing life that I've been able to to join the group and perform a lot of this music with you you terrible creep oh come on <laughs> but I love it if you know if you were to say you know what's what's at the core of my repertoire I would absolutely say English Tudor polyphony without doubt yeah, well, it's it's funny because I, I feel the same, although I'm a long way from it these days. Occasionally, I get to do it with my choir up in here in York. We did Vox Partis, Mundi's Vox Partis, a year or so oh, ago, and, and the whole of the Talis Gaudi Gloriosa. But when I hear music like that, and Harry, I have to say, that is a staggering sound for a first recording. It really it's, is. It's just full I mean, blooded, it, isn't it? It, it? it really is. And, and one of the things I hope this podcast series will do is just to lay a few myths to rest about 
how British some British groups are are perceived to do this repertoire because I think there is an idea that it's all very anemic and uh, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And uh, what you're talking about is is letting singers have their head and and to emote. Anyway, we'll move on. How many recordings have Fagiolini made now? I think we're on our 25th, something like that. So slow business for us. Well, yeah, that's not too bad. And as I said, it's pretty good going in 30, you know, 34 years. More recently, the projects have been pretty large scale. I'm thinking back to the to the Strigio Mass and uh, and the other Vespers. Um, but take us back to early days of Fagiolini and your first ventures into recording for us. Yeah, well, the first one that we heard earlier was from a, a cassette called uh, Bean Feast. Uh, we have this silly name, which for some historical reason refers to vegetables. Um, and uh, that was just something done the week after final recitals. But then we got we got taken up in a, in a in a classical venture by Factory Records, which was run by Tony Wilson, involved in the Hacienda Club and Joy Division, things like this. I didn't really understand very much about it, but someone came up to me and said, oh, would you like to record some something that you fancy? And I, of course, just said yes, especially if they offered to pay a bit of money for it. Um, ha, that'll make us laugh, being paid money to make a recording. That's uh, <laughs> not something that happens anymore. Um, and uh, we did a disc of Monteverdi, which I would, had been passionate about really for, since I was about 15 or 16. And we uh, took some a cappella pieces. We did some pieces with strings, some of the magicals of War and Love. Uh, and a piece that we'd done in our very first concert called the Lamento d'Arianna, which is mm. from his sixth book of magicals. It's a reworking of the only bit that's left from his lost off Arianna, where she's on the shores of Naxos. She's been uh, effectively betrayed by Theseus, who's gone off to see his parents. Uh, and she's she's ranting in a, in a way that Purcell and others started doing later on in, in, in mad songs, uh, which is one thing if it's just you and a lute. It's quite another thing if you're writing it for five uh, five singers. I was very, very taken by this piece.
Robert, I had a copy of that album uh, in my first Ooh. year at university, Ooh. The Art of Monteverdi. Yeah. And we used to listen to it a lot because I'd never heard any music like it before. Um, the passion in the singing and, and particularly the dissonance of, of Monteverdi's musical language was something that was completely new to me. And we used to sit there and obsess over, <laughs> over these scrunchy chords. Um, now, this all started to make sense once I met you. Uh, and realised that it was an obsession that had informed your musical life. It's the dissonance, isn't it? That Monteverdi had an aware. I mean, for, for 600 years by the time Monteverdi was writing, they had an understanding of the harmonic series, which is at the basis of, of Western harmony. Uh, and in that series, in which uh, each note is a, a multiple of the previous, the vibrations of the previous note, um, I mean, this is why a major key, a major chord sounds nice. Boom, 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 boom. Sounds nice because each of those notes is the same number of vibrations multiplied by by one. And Monteverdi, if you carry on that series, you start getting what if, to us sound like sort of jazz or blue notes at the top. And Monteverdi was very aware of this. If you have your major third at the bottom and your minor third at the top, you get this wonderfully pleasurable dissonant sound, which is a bit like perfectly filled black and white mud wrestling it's unmistakably fragilean isn't it i mean that, that that's an early recording it's full-blooded sound again it's it's emotional it's passionate i love it that there's very little restraint in there um uh well now that's that maybe that's this gives a slightly wrong impression but you have a singer like andrew tusa who, who sang for the monteverdi choir for a while after this but then went into a totally different career and i i remember i can see him you asked about early days i can see him in my mind's eye singing to the microphone practically making love to the microphone with his hands in the air as he sang with this unbridled passion and and you know you 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 can't buy that someone either has it or they don't that's amazing. See, here's another connection between that. You mentioned uh, Andrew Tusa there. He was the evangelist uh, on a tour of the St. John Passion, uh, which we undertook in my in my first year at university. And I, I didn't I didn't know that it was him singing on that disc. Is that strange? Tertiary shift. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Harry, over the last sort of 15 years, have seen a great sort of increase and rise in the profile of the 16, um, the success of the Choral Pilgrimage, uh, which started out as, you know, I'm sure, again, a project that you didn't think would be going on some 20 years later. Um, and we did this wonderful series on the BBC Sacred Music, which I think was uh, helped to bring the group to a much wider audience. And it's been it's been wonderful to, to be part of that. But it, it can't always have been uh, like this. There must have been harder times. There were, there were, there were very, very difficult times. I mean, we've talked about the sort of start of a group when we, you know, it's friends, be it be them older or younger than me, but you know, all coming together, wanting to perform music. But then when it gets serious and you start, you know, having to um, do proper budgets and and I did it all on my own to start with, and then we we went in with the uh, agency Magenta Music, which used to run the Hilliards. I mean, that's that's the main group they they ran, and. It, it was all going pretty well, really. The, record, the recorded recording started, and uh, I remember years, something like 1988, 89, when we were recording for Hyperion, Shandos, Virgin, Collins Classics had just started. It was the crazy advent of the CD, and we all went mad. Uh, but then come about early 1990s, and we sort of hit a real rock bottom. We were incredibly... Um, uh, we, we were in the red in a, to pooling summer money. And one day I just uh, we, I took Peter Burroughs out of Magenta Music, said, will you come with me to, to, to sort of run the group? And I met a lady called Sarah Tennant Flowers, uh, well-known for a group Papagena, and we went to the front room of a friend's um, house and and got the 16 back on the straight and narrow pretty quickly. Uh, but they were, they, were, they were difficult times. I had to remortgage the house. Um, and uh, but uh, we've come out the other end, but they are, you know, it is hard. And you've just got to have sort of faith in what you're doing. And but but above all, the people in the group were so loyal. And, uh, you know, they they sort of they sort of knew that actually things would get right in the end. And we did. Yeah. And the people have I mean, it's only a couple of years ago that the last founder member of the group, uh, Sally Dunkley, stopped singing with the group full time and there were people singing with the group for such a long time your loyalty to the singers has been a part of that as well oh well, yes I, it, it works both ways i mean what, what's lovely actually about the group now is that a lot of those uh, three or four of the people who are founder members i'm thinking of robin bardo richard price um chris hodges they were uh, part of the board of the 16 and richard and robin still are a very vital board of it so you know that the people at the top our, tr- our trustees uh, are actually they know what the group is all about and that's a, that's a really very important thing for us i mean we're we are a family uh, and and we run it in that in that way right from the board down to to the members of the choir member of the orchestra etc robert just thinking about the the makeup of e fagellini 
Um, there are a couple of people in the group who've been there for a, a long time as well. And that brings, you know, that sense of, of trust that you develop between each other. You can't put a price on that, really, can you? No, um, Anna Crooks, particularly, who, who I first met as Anna Markland, she'd been a young musician of the year playing the Rachmaninoff second piano concerto. I remember seeing that when I was 15, she was 16, then I went to university and there she was. Um, and she's been there. She's had this sort of emotional thing about singing all her life that's so different from her piano playing career. And uh, her stability emotionally uh, and musically, I mean, uh, she's sung for 16, of course, and Harry knows what a a rock she is uh, in every sense. Uh, difficult to difficult to put money on that. Uh, when you have Anna in the room, you know that the rehearsal will be uh, will be in in good hands. She's she's part of that team. Um, I want to pick up on what Harry was saying about you know the bad times. You know, it's if if we were less left to our publicists, you know, it would all be everything was marvelous and everything was you know here's our latest thing and isn't it all? It's it's mostly a phenomenal amount of hard work. Um, on my gravestone, it will say, uh, it will say he mostly spent his time working around singers' availability. Um, <laughs> that, that that isn't so much the case these days, but there's still an awful lot of it. And that the sheer admin that eats us up. People think we're musicians, or well, music is the lucky bit when we get out and we're not doing admin. Um, and and you know the money worries uh, again for people listening outside the UK. Perhaps they'll be astonished to know that we don't have any sort of uh, government funding. It's This is all done on the money we can raise ourselves and concert recordings. So it's been an extraordinary struggle and difficult to say whether one would recommend it as a, as a career path, except that at the end of the day, you get to perform the music that turns you on and that you hope you can share with other people. That's a really key point and really being brought home to us at the moment while we're in this lockdown period and you know, all of us performing musicians find that we can't get out and do the thing that we love, which is which is connecting with an audience. It's very important, that, isn't it? I mean, that, that, that's what our choral pilgrimages have done for us. And you know uh, that very well, Eamon, that we go to wonderful parts of the country, fantastic communities. And that's how we survive, um, not only financially, but of course, but actually socially and and as as, as human beings. And at the present time, that, that is the single gr- greatest difficulty, not being with our with our friends and not performing to our fantastic audiences. Uh, they mean so much to us. Robert, you turned that to uh, an advantage, This the, the connection with the audiences, setting up the Fagellini Friends, which became a, has become a big part of the organisation, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, beyond anything else, it's just lovely to know that there's, uh, you know, five or six people out there who who uh, enjoy what you do and are, uh, and are prepared to get involved. Um, I mean, they can be in, as involved or uninvolved as they like, but it's nice for me to have a sounding board for ideas. Um, when I'm desperate for a bit of money, I'll go to them and say, you know, anyone got any loose change knocking around this week? Um, uh, and I just enjoy the fact that there are people there to share things with because it can be an extraordinary solitary business uh, doing this. I enjoy working with uh, with my manager, Libby Percival, because it's a shared thing. But for a long time, I was on my own doing this, as Harry was at the beginning. Uh, and uh, I was jealous of those that had setups where you, it was more collegiate. We we're reaching the end of our allotted time uh, for this first episode of Coral Chihuahua. Cool suspension.
something of a voyage of discovery for us. We'll see how, how we progress from here. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to the podcast with your usual podcast provider. Uh, and if you'd like to hear any more of the music, the little excerpts that you've heard, um, you can go to the 16 website uh, or indeed the Fagellini website and find details of how to get hold of those recordings. We're going to finish with another early recording from the 16s uh, back catalogue, Harry. This is a piece that for me is very closely associated with the 16. Um, it's the Gloria from Palestrina's Missy Papi Marcelli. And it was actually in the, the first programme that I ever conducted with the group. I think it's uh, 1990, this recording. Yes, it's uh, St. Jude's on the Hill up in Hampstead, Garden Suburb. And uh, it's really interesting. Well, I looked through the, the CD booklet the other day and uh, you see these wonderful names. Uh, Mark Padmore in the tenor line, Christopher Purvis in the bass line. Blimey. And a certain Nigel Short in the outer line. <laughs> but actually, when you listen to this, the, in the first tenor, having uh, the field day in the Laudamus Day, it's actually one Phil Daggett who sings in the NO chorus. I like full of full-blooded tenors. Well, here it is.
Cool Chihuahua is brought to you by E. Fagellini and the Sixteen and produced by Perseus, the Sixteen and Polyphonic Films. It's supported by E. Fagellini Charitable Trust. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks.